Let there be light. Y'all awake? Okay, I I know you guys are in that pre-Thanksgiving coma before it comes, uh, but wake up. No? Okay, that's all right. Glad you guys are here. My name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here at GBC. I'm glad to be able to open God's word with you this morning. We're in week three of our series, In Secret. You know, of all the ways that we are called to engage in loving an unbelieving world with the good news of the gospel, there are just a few spiritual disciplines, a few practices in which we are to practice them in secret before God and him alone with an audience of one in mind, looking for the approval of our Heavenly Father more than the approval and the affirmation of other people. Our giving, our praying, and this morning we're going to talk about our Fasting, because who doesn't want to be called to fast four days before Thanksgiving, right? Thanks, Pastor Dustin, for making me the crowd favorite this weekend. If you're new to the conversation, we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. If you've got a Bible, you can start making your way there. The first 18 verses, uh, we've been listening to Jesus throughout this Sermon on the Mount, specifically in chapter 5, as he's been kind of painting a picture of what it looks like for those who are called into his kingdom. The kind of characteristics that are shaped by life in the kingdom. And what he's been doing is reminding us that the righteous conduct of kingdom characteristics are to be on display. Like the life of a kingdom citizen is to be visible so that God might be glorified. Listen, there are many ways in which God can be glorified. Don't get me wrong. We can, we can look at a beautiful sunset or a sweeping mountain range, and we can be drawn into giving God the creator glory. But one of the chief ways in which God desires himself to be glorified is when the people of God express the love of God authentically and consistently and faithfully. This is why Dustin each week has been taking us back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, where Jesus calls us, the church, calls you, O Christ follower, you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And so as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, our lives are to be lived on display before an unbelieving world. And yet... Our on-display lives should never be lived in order to get affirmation and applause from other people, but from God in heaven. This is what Jesus has been warning us about this entire chapter of Matthew chapter 6. Look how he starts the chapter. Matthew 6, verse 1. This is what Jesus says, beware. When Jesus says beware, we need to lean in and pay attention. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who sees in secret and who is in heaven. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Whether it's our giving or our praying or our fasting, those things that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, beware of your works, your righteousness being put on display for the approval and the applause of other people. Can you guys turn me down just a little bit, Adam? And this is hard because most of us, most of us in the room, we like applause. We, most of us like affirmation. We like to be noticed when we work hard. We like to be recognized for a job well done. 
And yet, there's some specific disciplines of a devotional life, our praying, our giving, our fasting, that are to be done in secret. Before God alone, for his applause and his approval. In in a very real sense, what Jesus is asking us in this sixth chapter, these first 18 verses, is why do you do what you do? He's given us cause to examine our motives. Do we do what we do for the sake of appearance, for the sake of other people and their approval? Or do we do things compelled by the love of God for the sake of God and his glory? Let's read the passage together. Matthew 6, starting in verse 16, addressing this discipline of fasting. And when you fast, Jesus says, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by other people. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your heavenly father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So this series has been kind of easy to preach because Jesus has been really consistent throughout this entire first half of Matthew chapter 6. He is saying the same thing week in and week out, which means that the takeaways are really simple for us preachers. I've got two major takeaways from this passage for us this morning, if you're note takers. Here's the first takeaway. The first takeaway is a fasting savior should have fasting disciples. In chapter 6, verse 16, Jesus doesn't lead with an if you fast, but a when you fast. And he's done this the whole chapter. Chapter 6, verse 3, he did it with our giving. He didn't say if you give, but when you give to meet the needs of those who don't have. When you give, chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, and this morning, when you fast, a fasting Savior should have fasting disciples. And the second takeaway, I've already said it as much, our worship, our giving, our praying, our fasting should be done with an ear towards heaven, with an audience of one in mind, not for the approval and the acclamation and affirmation of the crowds of other people. Now let's hang out on that first takeaway this morning for a bit, and here's why. I was talking with Pastor Dustin the other morning, and he said, you know, Cameron, thinking about our people and our church family. Like, our church knows how to give. We have a lot of extravagant givers, but they need to be encouraged to keep giving, to keep giving, to meet the needs of the people in our communities and the people around the globe for the good of those around us and the glory of God. He said, Cameron, our people are prayers. They pray with fervency, but they need to be encouraged to keep praying for God's will to be done and for God's kingdom to come in the Heartland region and on the earth as it is in heaven. But then he said, Cameron, I I don't think our people are fasters. I don't think our people have regular rhythms of intentional and consistent bouts of fasting in their lives. And so he said, let's hang out and talk about this when you fast, but not if you fast. Which begs the question, what is fasting? Let's get a working definition here. Here's, Here's one that I think is really helpful. Fasting is voluntarily going without food or 
any other regularly enjoyed good gift of God in order to heighten our hunger for God. Fasting is voluntarily going without so that we can get more of God. To grow in our hunger for God, hunger for his word, hunger for his discernment, hunger for his presence, hunger for a greater awareness of his delight over us as his children. Fasting is voluntarily going without food, primarily, or any other good and regularly enjoyed gift of God so that we can grow in our hunger for God. Now, the Bible has lots to say about fasting. You want to know one of the first and most important things? Fasting and prayer, they go together. Fasting and prayer go together. Folks, if we don't have a regular discipline of coming to our Heavenly Father to listen for His voice through the practice of prayer, fasting is not going to be of much use to us. You know, we might lose a couple of pounds, sure, but that's way too low of a bar to set for what we have in mind here. See, throughout history, people who were desperate for God to move and to act on their behalf, they made the choice to fast and pray together. King David did it. Elijah. Queen Esther. Deborah. One of my favorites, Anna, the prophetess, Luke chapter 2. Anna. Uh, this is what Luke 2 tells us about Anna. In Luke chapter 2, it says that she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. You know what she was waiting on? She was waiting on Jesus to show up, the Messiah, as a baby. We're going to celebrate that text as we begin to journey towards Bethlehem's manger starting next week and the Advent season. But Anna, she fasted and she prayed. That word serving in the temple in the Greek is worship. She worshiped God through fasting and praying significantly and intentionally and consistently. The Apostle Paul, throughout the epistles, he fasted as well and called people to it. And Jesus, Jesus is our fasting Savior whom we're about to look at in just a few minutes. Jesus fasted, led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to begin his ministry by fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Let's talk about church history. Gosh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards. There's a lot of Johns in church history that were significant men that God used. Susanna Wesley, John's wife, Catherine Boots, like so many people, men and women in the early church who engaged in the practice of fasting and prayer in order for God to move. Let's just talk briefly about the history of Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if you know who this guy is, but he was one of the greatest theologians of the 19th century. And God used him as a catalyst for the 18th century revival, the Great Awakening that swept through Britain and swept through the northern parts of North America and the United States. And it's told in history that for three days before Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he neither ate nor slept. And it was said of him that the prayer that he kept praying over and over and over again was this, O oh Lord, Give me New England. Oh, Lord, give us New England. Immediate conviction as I read those words. Because, frankly, I haven't been praying, oh, God, give us Highlands County. Give us the Heartland region. Give us Seabring. Give us Avon Park and Lake Placid and Arcadia and Frostproof and LaBelle and Okeechobee and, 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 and. And so Jonathan Edwards, he prayed and he fasted. We also read in the story that they say he preached that message with his notes right in front of his face so that no one could see his face. He read his words without any theatrics, and the response was 
electric. Talking true story here. Go and read it. People coming outside of his church walking by were gripped with conviction by the spirit and literally ran into the church and crawled their way to the altar under the impression of the spirit through his preaching. One man ran up to the altar, fell on the ground and cried out, have mercy, Mr. Edwards. Men and women gripping the back of the pews with tears running down their face because they could see vividly the fiery pit of hell that Edwards was describing as he unpacked the good news of the gospel. And all of this, all of this because this man was convinced that fasting and praying for God to move and to bring revival in his own heart and through him to the place that God had called him to minister was worth it. Now here's the deal. Throughout scripture and even in church history, we see the evidence, remarkable evidence of fasting. But fasting isn't some formula to get God to do what we want him to do. Like all the spiritual disciplines, fasting and praying and giving and meditation and all these different ways in which we engage in a devotional life, fasting simply puts us in a position where God can speak and move in our lives. It prepares us to receive the work of God. That's the story behind Jonathan Edwards. It's the story behind all of the men and women who submitted their lives to God through the ministry of fasting and praying. They were pleading for God to do something, and God was getting ready to do something. And they asked God to move on their behalf. And our Savior, Jesus, he did the same thing. There's only one place in the scriptures, in the gospels, that we actually find Jesus Fasting. If a fasting Savior should have fasting disciples, we need to look at Jesus' fasting. So turn with me just a couple pages back to Matthew chapter 4. There's one place where we find Jesus fasting in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 4. And I want to just pull out one or two quick significant things that we can see about Jesus' ministry of fasting for us. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 starts with the word, then, then. It's a transition word. It tells us that something happened before this moment in the text. And it was a significant thing that happened. Does anybody know what happened? Jesus got baptized. It's an important story. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't get baptized because he needed to be baptized. Uh, he wasn't a sinner. He didn't need to repent. He was baptized to identify with our humanity, to walk in obedience, to fulfill all righteousness. But here's what happened at his baptism at the end of Matthew 3. The heavens opened up and a voice boomed from heaven. God the Father declared, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then the spirit of God descended upon Jesus and lit upon him. Powerful allusion there in Matthew 3 back to Genesis chapter 1. When the Father was present, Jesus, the Word, was present. And the Spirit hovered over the waters, over the chaos, and over the deep like a dove. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit showed up at Jesus' baptism, much like Father, Son, and Spirit showed up over creation in Genesis 1-1. Why? Because the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, created the world, and the Father, Son, and Spirit were going to be at work in recreating the world, inaugurating Jesus' ministry. Now, that's great, that's important, that's compelling, but here's what's most impressive. The Spirit of God equipped and empowered Jesus for the work of ministry, and where did he take him next? Not to some packed-out synagogue or some packed-out marketplace for Jesus to preach some fire message. Instead, the Spirit of God led Jesus 
into the wilderness. Verse 1, chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And all God's people said, duh. Verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, stop there. As much as I'd like to hang out in the entirety of this passage, we're not here for the temptation. I want to show you one or two significant things about our fasting Savior. Here's the first significant observation from our fasting Savior. You ready? The Spirit of God knew that at the outset of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus' hunger for the Father needed to outweigh his hunger for everything else. The Spirit of God understood that Jesus' hunger for his heavenly Father and for his Father's voice needed to outweigh every other hunger there was in his life. And trust me, Jesus was fully man and he understood the pain of hunger and the appetites that we experience. And the same is true for us. Our hunger for God the Father needs to outweigh our hunger for anything else. Second big significant thing we learn from just these two verses in the Savior's fasting is this. Any great call of God requires us to sharpen our ears for heaven's voice. Any great call of God requires that we sharpen our ears to become more attentive to heaven's voice. We all know the great call on Jesus' life, right? The call on Jesus' life was to come as the Son of God, as God in human flesh that we're about to celebrate during the Advent season. Jesus came to live the life that none of us could live. A perfectly sinless and obedient life, completely obedient, even to the point of death on a cross, and to die a ransom for many. To die the death that all of us deserved. Jesus was called by God into the wilderness, led by the Spirit. And Jesus understood that saying no to the physical hungers in his body empowered him to say yes to God in the midst of intense testing and trial. The church family, I don't know if you've personally or corporately experienced the fortifying power that comes from saying no to what we want in order to sharpen our ears towards heaven's voice. You know, scholars have a lot to say about the why behind Jesus' fasting, specifically his 40 days in the wilderness. A lot of scholars zero in, and this is important, that Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness desert was a parallel, and it was to be seen as fulfilling the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness in the desert. See, Jesus was the greater Israel doing what Israel could not do, obey God in the wilderness, obey God in the testing. And that's a rich and fascinating study. We don't have time for it. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus went into the wilderness led by the Spirit to fast in order to prepare him for the call of God on his life. And if the Spirit led Jesus into a season of intentional preparation and fasting, why should it be any different for us? Why should the preparation for the call of God on any one of our lives be any different than it was for Jesus. Well, I'm sure you're saying, oh, well, I'm not Jesus and I don't have that call on my life. No, but you do have a call on your life. Each and every one of us do. You want to know what it is? You ready? You ready? I know you've been waiting for this all your life, so I'm going to tell you what God's call on your life was. Here it comes. You might want to write this down. You have been called into the mission 
critical, globe-shaping, great commission work of making disciples who make disciples. And no, that's not just church speak. That is the reason that you have been left on this rock called earth and indwelt with the spirit of the living God so that you might love people into seeing and savoring Jesus and obeying Jesus the way that you obey Jesus. Your life, your unique personality and quirks and warts and worries and all, your neighborhood that you live in, your economic bracket, the vocation that you think you chose but God chose alongside of you, the unique family and relational dynamics and conflict that you're experiencing. God knew what he was getting when he redeemed you from sin, Satan, and the grave for the purpose of indwelling you with his spirit in order to love people far from God into the family of God. That's the call of God on our lives. And why would it be any different for us to say no to some of the hungers in our lives in order to become a little bit more attentive to what God is saying so that we can be better equipped to fulfill the call that God has on our lives. Now, hear me. We're not calling you to fast 40 days and 40 nights, okay? Uh, that's what we call a supernatural fast, okay? Like, we're pretty sure Jesus didn't eat or drink for 40 days, you shouldn't do that unless Jesus shows up in person on your front doorstep and hands you a handwritten note. Like, don't do that, okay? Like, I'm pretty sure you'd die unless God called you to that. But what if? What if, especially those of you that are feeling, you know, a little disconnected from God right now? Let's be real. Like, 2020 has been brutal for everyone. And I'm no different. Like, I'm, I'm feeling, I have days where I'm feeling really disconnected from God. What if those of us who are feeling a little bit disconnected from God, what if we fasted our next meal? And instead of eating, we get alone with God and we say, God, remind me of your great love to me and through me. We ask God to kind of refresh our hearts and our minds, renew us, remind us of your great love for us. A family, how about instead of binging that next Netflix installment, you guys get around the couches and you guys talk about the things that you are thankful for as we move into this Thanksgiving season. Fast something in order to get before your heavenly father and begin to invite him to remind you of who he is and what he's done and who you are in light of that work. Here's the deal, folks. So often we move ahead in life making big decisions and small decisions without praying and fasting. See, praying and fasting isn't just about figuring out how to be prepared for the call in our lives, but it's also about inviting the discernment and wisdom from on high into those kinds of decisions we have going on in our lives. Changing careers this year of our Lord 2020, have you prayed and fasted about it? Selling that house, buying a new house, have you prayed and fasted about it? You're going to marry that guy, going to marry that girl? Have you invited wisdom from on high by praying and fasting and being serious enough to invite God to speak and give you his wisdom? Have you prayed and have you fasted about it? I'll say it again, folks. Throughout history, people who were desperate for God to act, they made the choice to pray and fast together. And this is the real issue for us. Are we desperate for God to act in our lives? I feel like one of the greatest things that has suffered in this year of 2020 is that the kingdom of God 
has suffered in our homes because none of us have known how to nurture our own love affairs with Jesus. You've been getting it from us on a Sunday. And so Jesus is inviting us into the secret places so that we can stoke the embers of our love affair with Jesus. And fasting is central to learning to hear from on high with a kind of clarity that is unknown apart from it. First takeaway this morning is that a fasting Savior should have fasting disciples. The second takeaway this morning, and we said it earlier, in our worship, in our giving and our praying and our fasting, we should have an audience of one, our Heavenly Father, seeking His face and His approval, not the approval of others. Again, Jesus assumes that his followers are going to fast here. Verse 1, when you fast. Verse 16, when you fast, not if. But his very first statement about fasting, he deals with the question of motive. Again, why? Why do we do the things that we do? That's what motive is. Why? What's compelling you to do the things that you're doing? See, New Testament fasting had become a show In Jesus' day, a show of false devotion and false piety. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, they fasted two days a week, Monday and Thursday. You know what? Monday and Thursday just happened to be market days in Jerusalem. Those jokers knew what they were doing. They wanted a crowd for their theatrics, for their fasting before the crowds. It's why they disfigured their faces, made sure they looked all screwed up when people saw them so that they would think, my, how holy those brothers are. Are. Look at their fasting. See, the Pharisees were only concerned about a righteousness displayed that focused on the externals, the things that you could look at, how they appeared before the public. But these practices, these disciplines of giving and praying and fasting, they are to be internal works and internal works that happen best in secret. Now, here's why this is important. If you've checked out, check back in. Here's why this is important. This kind of self-seeking that we see out of the Pharisees who disfigured their faces so that they could get the attention and approval of the crowds around them. This kind of self-seeking approval, it compels us to try to live lives that can ultimately be measured and validated by other people. Let me say it like this. When our giving and our praying and our fasting is on display, we are compelled to try to generate a life that always is on display display a life of show a life that is always living for the approval of other people but when we do that we set ourselves up for two immediate losses two immediate losses when we are more concerned for the approval of other people the first loss is this you ready this will punch you in the gut when our eyes and our ears are tuned to imperfect people, their imperfect opinions begin to carry more weight than God's opinion. When we care more about the opinions of imperfect people in which we work with and live with or experience in our day-to-day environments, when we are more concerned with the imperfect opinions of imperfect people, they begin to carry more weight than God's opinions. And hear me, church, What we need most in this life, next to the life of Jesus rescuing us from sin and death, is to have a thorough and intimate understanding of God's opinion of us in Christ. 
We need to know that we are God's righteous being loved children who are blameless and beyond reproach because of the work of Jesus in us and through us. We need to be reminded that we are righteous in God's eyes, even when we don't feel like it or act like it. And this is never a license to sin. If anything, it is an accountability to never sin against a God who loves us so much that even our performance would not change his view of us in Christ. We're talking about grace here, folks. We're talking about the work of the gospel God making Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's God's opinion of us in Christ. God's opinion of us outside of Christ, you're an enemy of God. And the target of his divine wrath is painted upon you and you will stand judgment before a holy and righteous God. But you don't have to. Because God has poured out his wrath upon his son. It pleased the father to crush the son so that he could embrace us as sons and daughters. It's the good news of the gospel. But if we're more concerned with the imperfect opinions of imperfect people, then the opinions of God, they get crowded out. That's the first loss we set ourselves up for when we are more concerned with what others think about us. Here's the second loss. The second loss is similar to the first, but it's a little different. Listening to the voices of others for validation. As noisy and as ever-changing as their opinions are. Listening to the voices of others for validation, it drowns out the still, small voice of God. You remember the prophet Elisha after he had that amazing uh, encounter on the mountain of uh, Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal, 1 Kings 18, 19, go read it. God showed up and slew all of the enemies and man, it was a high note for, for Elijah. And then he got scared of his life and he ended up running halfway across the country, ended up at another rock and another mountain and then God showed up. There was a hurricane, there was a, there was a mountain-shaking earthquake, there was fire all over the mountain, and then in the end, there was a still, small voice. And God said, I wasn't in the fire, I wasn't in the wind, I wasn't in the hurricane, I was in the still, small voice. Now here's the point, folks. It is the still, small voice, the steady voice of God that settles us in unchangeable and authoritative truth. It is who God says we are that roots us in the grace of Jesus and it fortifies us from every false and changing opinion meant to steal from us the confidence that we have in Christ. And if I was the enemy, if I was Satan, I would work so hard to get you to be so confident in the voices and the opinions of other people that you forgot what the voice of your heavenly father sounds like. I'd get you so busy that you don't even know where your prayer closet is, that you don't even know what it means to sit still and silently before your heavenly father who longs to speak to you in secret. That's what I would do if I was the enemy. I, I'd put one of these in your hands and let that steal from you every moment of silence that the father desires to commune with you. 
I'm just as guilty. And here's what happens as a result. As a result of our giving and our praying and our disciplines of fasting, they become distorted when we care more about the approval and applause of other people. Our gifts are given to satisfy our own needs instead of the needs of other people. Our prayers are offered to our fellow men and women instead of being offered to our Heavenly Father. And our fasting, oh folks, our fasting, which is designed to starve our self-centered habit patterns and to fill us with the fullness of God. Instead, it serves us in a backwards way. It fills our egos with emptiness. And so Jesus says, beware, chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness, your righteousness, your righteousness. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. You want to know if you're practicing your righteousness? It's going to constantly need to be validated by external means. You're going to constantly need to be told how awesome you are by other people. And Jesus says, if that's what you are going for, there will be a reward, but it will be empty and fleeting and it will change overnight. And that kind of reward, it wears out and it will wear us out. It wears out and it will wear us out. And so hear me, those of you traveling that set of tracks, more concerned with the approval of your fellow man and woman, hear the invitation of Jesus this morning. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, come to me come to me those of you who are tired and weary and heavy laden come to me i will give you rest i will give you a rest that is so much deeper than you trying to validate your existence by your performance i will give you a rest that is so much richer and so much deeper that speaks to the deep place in you that i created I love how Eugene Peterson, the poet theologian, paraphrases this verse in the message translation. He writes this, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. You ready? He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. I'll show you how to take a real rest. That's the, that's the invitation of your Savior this morning. GBC family, you want to know what the rest is? You want to know what the rest is when we finally come to Jesus and we stop with the pretense of trying to care more about what other people say and what they think about us? You want to know what the rest is? The rest comes when we receive and come to know the free gift of righteousness that is ours in Christ. The real rest is knowing that we are good and right with our Heavenly Father, not because we perform a certain way, but because Jesus performed the only way that brings glory to God. And that by grace, through faith, when we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus is who he says he is, that the Bible says that we become the righteousness of God in Christ. The real rest of the gospel is knowing that God is pleased with who we are, not with what we do. Let me say that again. The real rest of the gospel is knowing that God the Father is pleased with us because of who we are, not because of with what we do. That's why we've been saying for months now that the gospel is not about behaving better, it's about believing better. It's about believing that we are who God says we are. And beloved, this 2020 has been brutal for all of us. 
some harder for others, we need to be reacquainted with the opinions of our Heavenly Father. And that comes best in secret. So here's our challenge. Uh, your next meal, fast it. And get along with God. The next time you're in the car, don't put on the podcast. Don't listen to the news. Don't listen to the music. Keep your eyes open, but invite the Father to speak to the deep place in your heart to remind you who you are and whose you are, who he is and what he has done. Turn off the TV later. Open up your Bible. Go to Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. And ask the Spirit of God to show you what it means to come to him and have him to show you what it means for you to lay your weariness upon him for his yoke and his burden is light. Our prayer in this season is that our giving and our praying and our fasting would become avenues of reacquainting ourselves and nurturing our love affair with Jesus so that our tanks are full regardless of how the election turns out, regardless of whether or not the pandemic's going to end, regardless of whether we're going to have a shutdown or a mask mandate or a man fill in the blank, regardless of what's next, we can be anchored and rooted to a hope that is so much deeper than the here and the now. And that anchor gets rooted the more we engage in these practices of in secret worship with our Father. Pray with me. Father, we, we need your help because we are a distracted, busy, hungry people. And yet you are calling us to a deeper place, a quieter place, an in-secret place. And only you, by the conviction of your spirit, can so convince us that these steps of devotional intimacy with you is worth the cost of starving our flesh and our want to. Convince us, Father, that these practices of spiritual devotion are worth the investment, especially in these days to come, Father, as we fix our eyes towards Bethlehem's manger, as we begin to worship you, Jesus, in this Christmas season. Slow us down so that we can see and Savior our coming King rightly. It's in Jesus' name we pray.